0: Welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates.
1: And I am Kathy Ryan.
0: And this is Healwell's podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow humans in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us for another rousing conversation with a smart, compassionate lover of humans. Uh, we are excited that uh, this weekend our Just Care conference is going on, uh, so you can still hop in there. Uh, we also have our Season 4 contest happening, so if you leave us a review and we read it on the show, you can choose from one of four exciting prizes. You get a mug or a t-shirt or a 30-minute conversation with Cal Cates and Kathy Ryan about anything you want to talk about, or you can hang out with Rebecca Sturgeon and Janet Penny, authors of... Oncology massage and integrative approach, uh, and they will talk to you and the people at your clinic if you're in a clinic-y type environment. So that's incredibly exciting. As you know, we like to start the show with a little pun, and I think you guys are going to like this one. I just I'm going to tell you a little bit of a, a story uh, about my grandpa. He uh, he's got the heart of a lion and a lifetime ban from the zoo. <laughs> yeah. Thank you my friend thank you. <laughs> so uh you, what's you never disappoint. Oh, you never I, disappoint. you know I there are a lot of puns out there and I don't bring you guys the clunkers. I go for you know, you know top shelf top shelf puns. You go for the needy stuff. But, no, that's right. <laughs> like <laughs> totally. hearts hearts
1: and things.
0: Hearts and things. You got it. So uh what's what's new Kathy Ryan what should we know about things? Oh yeah. Um not a good situation here in, in yeah. BC. We're really
1: having a rough time uh locally in our community. People are being transferred out of our local hospital because we're at maximum capacity right now into either community 2 hours west or commu- or 2 hours yeah, west or t- 4 hours east. So, not good.
0: No. Yeah, I was really surprised to, um, I feel, I feel I was embarrassed. Uh, I I don't know what what a better word would be, but that I I didn't understand that just north of 54% of the US population is fully vaccinated. Um, That, you know, I've seen different numbers and obviously between cities, there's quite a difference, but like population wide, it's barely more than half the country that's fully vaccinated. And, um, and that we continue to have waves of, all kinds of reasons why people are are uninterested in, in being vaccinated. Um, and that it really isn't uh, just a political divide. Like there are just all kinds of things that are informing people's decisions to not get vaccinated. And now, of course, we have the question of booster shots. And as healthcare providers who possibly were vaccinated quite early in the cycle, there's a question about, you know, is your vaccine still effective? And Booster shots are available in certain places here, but primarily just for folks who are uh, immune compromised or uh, otherwise at higher risk. So we're all just trying to do our best. And my son uh, is 11 and he listens to a lot of Spotify. And he was um, saying last night that all the commercials um, in his world, all quote, the commercials on Spotify are about masking and physical distancing and just like doing what you can to be safe. And he was he was outraged that that still was a thing, but also very excited that, you know, Spotify was <laughs> taking the pandemic seriously.
1: Still talking about the thing. Well, and you know, and, and it, it is complex, right? As as a massage therapist, as a healthcare provider, I'm one thousand percent committed to consent. So the whole concept of enforcing that someone puts something in their body that they're opposed to for a variety of reasons ethically, I, I do have some, you know, dilemma around that for sure. So if they're gonna choose not to vaccinate certainly that is an option that is available to them. But then I think you have to take the necessary precautions to mitigate risks. So if you're going to choose not to vaccinate, then you've got to take those extra steps to keep yourself out of harm's way. So it's not, you're not a burden on the healthcare system and as well to keep others out of harm's way. So, you know, the anti masking anti-vaccine thing is difficult for me because if you're not masking, you're not washing your hands, you're not staying out of public spaces there's a higher level of risk, so.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're going to have to have a, a guest on soon uh, to talk about ethics and and how this all plays out. We were, I was working with a patient yesterday who uh, received a left ventricular assist device, which is a, a pretty majorly intrusive procedure. And uh, that person is not willing to become vaccinated. And, and you know, it, it really raised a lot of questions um, for for me as a provider, mm-hmm. thinking like, you know, is this a thing where we say like you can't actually have this procedure unless you're willing to do this other thing that will increase the chances that you'll be able to survive with this um, device but then you know ethically where does the rubber meet the road so uh for sh- the media for conversation sure.
1: it is <laughs> yeah. and i i see all kinds of uh, you know potential conversation points within the ethics of healthcare do you withhold care from someone because they're doing something that is perceived as being contrary to their health and well-being. Now, we can imagine a lot of those situations. So, yeah, I think that would be a great conversation to have, which is not the conversation we're having today, but we are going to have a great conversation today with our okay. guests.
0: Indeed. Well, and I I, I do suspect that we'll get into some murky territory uh, because our our guest today is none other than the uh, inimitable Debbie LaFond, who has so many capital letters behind her name, I can't even try to reel them all in, but she is a giant in the field of uh, pediatric palliative care and uh, just, yeah, Um, you guys should see her flexing right now. It's (laughs) kind of amazing. Uh, So Debbie,
2: welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well there are so many things that um we're excited to talk with you about uh but before we dive into those things tell the kids what uh what you do what you've done what your career has been like um what what keeps you up at night
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, the whole podcast will be over by the time I finish all that. (laughs) Um, So my name is uh, Debbie LaFond, as uh, Cal so nicely introduced me, and I am a pediatric nurse practitioner. I have been um, a nurse practitioner for over 30 years and a nurse for over 40 years. I've worked in a variety of healthcare settings. Um, I guess my claim to fame, and I put that in Air quotes here is I was the first oncology nurse, pediatric oncology nurse in the United States Air Force. So that's my uh, my claim to fame. Um, awesome. And uh, you know, when you're in the military, they can sort of have you do whatever they want. And that really gave my um, that made me really thirst for more knowledge in the field of pediatric oncology. So then I went back to school and got my nurse practitioner um, certification uh, in. Uh, pediatric primary care, but my heart was drawn to oncology. And so I worked as a pediatric oncology nurse uh, practitioner at Children's National um, Hospital in Washington, D.C. for um, about 30 years. And during that time, I found that um, while we have a large number of survivors of pediatric cancers and other serious illnesses, um, we unfortunately also have a fair number of children who do not survive their disease. And I really wanted to see how can we make life better for them, just how can we help every day be the best it can be, whether they are long-term survivors or whether they um, succumb to their disease, you know, how can we make every day a good day? And that's really how I met Cal and how we got involved with HEOL well in trying to bring some integrative therapies into our practice, again, to support patients and families and, and staff. So but I'll stop there. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. If we really went into the details of your whole career, we would be here. Um, and that would be our whole episode. Uh, I, I mean, I don't even know what to highlight. I know that in the time that uh, we got to work together um, before you left Children's to go be uh, fancy in your own right, uh, doing your own thing, which actually we should talk about that as well, that um you received a pretty fancy award that um, provided some funding for the, what you called the Panda Cubs uh, training. Yes.
2: Um, yes. Um, thank you for bringing that up. So I was um, honored to have been chosen as a Sojourn Scholar and the Sojourns Leadership um, Program, Sojourn Scholars Leadership Program is a grant funded program by the Cambia Health Foundation. And the Cambia Health Foundation is headquartered out in the Pacific Northwest and they really have a commitment and a belief in palliative care for all ages, um, from the preborn to um, the geriatric population. And I applied um, to become a Sojourn Scholar in 2015. And um, I will tell you at the time it was competitive, but n- nowadays it's very competitive. Um, there are now uh, over 60 of us um, Sojourn Scholars. We have another one at Children's National as well. Um, so that's a little feather in our cap, which is great, um, Dr. Deborah Fisher is also a Sojourn Scholar, but this um, program is really in developing leaders um, in, pedi- in palliative care, and I happen to be in the pediatric uh, population, so I'm a pediatric uh, Sojourn Scholar. But my project for this, and you had to have... Uh, sort of a project that you were going to develop along the lines was something that I affectionately call Panda Cubs. And the reason it's called Panda Cubs is the palliative care team at Children's National is called the Panda palliative care team. Panda used to stand for this long drawn out thing um, and it got just too long to say it all the time and we shortened it to Panda. And then of course, you know, the the panda bear mascot and all of that. And I just thought panda cubs was sort of a a cute way of keeping um, primary clinicians who are at the bedside. So all levels of practice, attending physicians, uh, Fellows, residents in training, nurse practitioners, staff nurses, child life specialists, social workers, chaplains, anybody you can think of in the healthcare, volunteers, you know, anybody really in the healthcare arena, were um, invited to participate in this um, year-long. Um, Education program and teaching bedside like clinicians the basic precepts of pediatric palliative care. Again, back to sort of that mantra of how do we help make every day the best it can be? And that's from a physical point of view, pain and symptoms that they might have, supporting them emotionally, um, uh, just environmentally, making the hospital environment more friendly um, for the patient and the family, um, anything that might impact um, their health and well being. That's what we wanted to do. And we've been very successful in this to date. We've had um, almost 300 um, clinicians go through the uh, Panda Cubs program and they're not all from Children's National. We expanded in the second year to offer this to our community hospice partners. And then because they're the people taking care of our patients and families in the home and then also to our um, referring partners all over the the DC metro area, so uh, people from Johns Hopkins, people from University of Maryland, um, from hospital or HSC Pediatric Center, from ANOVA Fairfax, all over, anybody can really participate in this program. And it was initially grant funded, and I'm very happy to say that Children's National has supported it after the grant funding finished. So hopefully this will be ongoing for quite some time. And part of that was, again, building in the integrative part of our care um, and sort of expanding the way that we think about providing care to patients, looking at their whole mind, body, and spirit.
0: Do you find the same kind of, I know one of the challenges in adult palliative care is that you say palliative care and patients and families say, oh, we're not end of life. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about <laughs> if that's yeah. a hurdle and how you overcome it?
2: It's absolutely a hurdle. Um, In fact, when I, um, I went back for my doctorate of nursing practice in 2010, and at that time, my project was to bring palliative care to children undergoing bone marrow transplant. Well, bone marrow transplant is a curative intent therapy. You don't go for bone marrow transplant unless you're looking to be cured. But this idea actually came from a staff nurse who said, wow, these children and these families suffer a lot um, while they're here from isolation, from, you know, symptoms, uh, just being apart from their other family members. So how can we make things better for them? And so we just talked and I thought, aha, palliative care. That could be something that could help. And that's, um, you know, when I really started uh, bringing palliative care uh, sort of prior to end of life. But one of the first things when I sat down with a bone marrow transplant uh, team, and I will admit there's some bias here because I was very well known to them. I had worked at Children's for a number of years. They knew me. There was some trust there. You know, they knew I wasn't trying to talk people out of bone marrow transplant or anything like that. But the first words out of their mouth were, uh, these patients are not at end of life, so so they don't need you. And so there was a lot of trying to overcome that. We did. They were willing to give me a shot. We showed um, that... The- all families really wanted it, and um, we were able then to to bring our specialty palliative care team in there. Um, but we still, even today, fight that battle a little bit is that people don't understand what palliative care really is. They really do equate it with end-of-life care, and so it is a lot of the way – and and language that we use to introduce what palliative care is to patients and families. And if you can sort of overcome that, and usually one of my first questions to a family is, when I introduce myself is have you, you know, I'm Debbie, I'm from the palliative care, of Panda palliative care team. And you can sort of tell by the look in their eyes, either they're sort of glazed over, palliative care, what in the world is that? Or they have that look of horror on their face of, oh my goodness, somebody's here to tell me my child is dying and anywhere in between. So usually I will ask the question, have you ever heard of the word palliative before? And based on what they tell me, I sort of go down that road and explore what their fears and their um, concerns are. But I can probably think maybe one or two families have declined services. After we've really had an open and honest conversation, most of the time, you know, who doesn't want to have the best day they can have in the midst of, you know, a horrible disease or a horrible treatment or, you know, whatever the conditions might be. So it's a lot to do with the language and the way that you introduce things and always being open that, you know, we're here to just help if we're ever not helping. You know, you need to be open and honest and tell us, you know, you're not helping me. You know, in fact, you're making it worse and, you know, we'll go away. You can't really tell your bone marrow transplant doctor or your cardiologist or whomever go away because they really are needed. But we're the one team that people can say, you know, I don't think I need you today and we'll come back another day or we won't come back at all, depending on what that family needs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so
1: uh, Debbie, what would you say are I mean, this is so, so totally outside of my world as a massage therapist. This is not my area of practice at all. I certainly have had, you know, various family members navigate um, cancer care um, as well as clients, but adult. From your perspective, what are the f- like fundamental differences between palliative care for, for pediatrics versus adult patients? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, thank you for that question, because um, we get that often, you know, well, a child is just a little adult. And so we should apply everything from the adult world to the, the pediatric world. And, and that's just simply not the case. So I think there's a, um, a variety of differences. One, um, just the whole uh, myriad of diseases that children have um, are different and they're different among ages. They're different among um Uh, disease groups, uh, there's just a whole lot of fundamental differences. And when you look at the patterns of referral for pediatric palliative care, and I will say right off the bat that people often use palliative care and hospice sort of interchangeably, those, those words, they're not the same. Hospice is part of palliative care that is that umbrella that is more towards the end of a child's life or an adult's life for that matter, um, while palliative care really can begin at the time of diagnosis of a potentially life-limiting or serious illness. So I'm just gonna use the term palliative care to mean all of that huge umbrella from the time of diagnosis to um, end of life or hopefully survivorship, um, just to clarify that. But um, so different diseases. Um, The other thing is that in pediatrics, we have something called concurrent care. And that was uh, enacted by President Obama in 2010 to really uh, highlight that children um, have more technology driven and more intensive kind of medical treatments, uh, because often we may not even know what this child's diagnosis is in the beginning. And so there's a lot, especially children with underlying like neuromuscular or neurodevelopmental issues, that you're really not quite sure what the underlying disease is, or perhaps they have some kind of neurodegenerative disease that they're born with, but you don't know. Are they going to die early in childhood, or might they survive, you know, into young adulthood? You don't you don't really know because any one child is is it's an N of one. You know, any one child uh, has their own journey. So concurrent care um, allows for palliative care to be done. At the same time that disease directed therapies are done, I would love to see that, especially now that I'm getting older and may need hospice care myself and then, you know, near to hopefully not near future. Um, it would be wonderful for adults to have that because I think that there are many adults who have lifelong illnesses that could benefit from concurrent care. However, it's expensive and how are we gonna pay for all of that? Um, We have been able to show that there have been less hospitalizations and sometimes in some cases, Uh, less use of medical technology when we've been able to sit with families and explore what their real goals of care are. What are they hoping for their child? What can we fix and what can't we fix? And what can we use to sort of mediate their symptoms? So concurrent care is another big difference between pediatrics and adults. Um, And then we also have uh, siblings grandparents, you know, a huge, big extended population um, or huge extended family for our pediatric patients. Not to say that in the adult world, there aren't grandchildren and uh, siblings and spouses and there are, but we also have to educate and care for those as well Um, it's hard when mom and dad maybe both of them are working and just to pay the bills and now mom or dad or maybe both of them you know need to take time off to be with their their ill child who's going to do that and it's not so easy to say well grandma or aunt Lucy or whomever is going to come and stay with this child because as a mom or dad most, um, and I think I'm probably right in saying most, but most mom or dads want to be with their ill child and they want to be with their ill child as much as possible. So um, maybe that means somebody has to stop working or has to limit their their working? How does that impact the family finances? Um, And then their siblings who are also growing and developing and needing mom and dad and needing all the resources of that family. And how can we help them sort of navigate that journey as well? So there's a lot. Well, the other thing I guess I would say about the differences is that Pediatric care, as I alluded to earlier, has a lot of medical specialties. Um, and so often in the adult world, um, you have a life limiting condition, you're referred to hospice or you refer to the palliative care doctor, and they now become your primary medical team. And you don't always go back and see all of those other specialists. It's different in the pediatric world. Most pediatric patients continue to see all of those specialists, the neurologist, the cardiologist, the oncologist, whoever it is in their medical team, as well as their primary care provider, all the way through their diagnosis. There's a lot of... um, cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And so that's one part of what palliative care can do is sort of be that medical home for families so that we can sort of make sure, hey, did you know that this doctor changed this medication um, and that has a potential interaction with this other thing? Or did you know the family can't pay for this particular medication? You know, so there's just a lot of things that we can do, um, you know, to be sort of the clearinghouse uh, and make sure that everybody's on the same team. And I think that that's a lot of what we do is facilitate communication between all of the, the various medical teams. Hopefully they answer your question a bit.
0: I'm curious about your, uh, you know, I know one of the other points of resistance with adult uh, palliative care is actually the other clinicians and that ah. there's a sense even on the part of other clinicians that like you refer to palliative care when you quote, can't do anything else to help mm-hmm. this patient. And my sense, at least from working with the providers at Children's is that, The pediatric providers have a sense that anything you can do to help their patient, they're more on board for it and that they're not as threatened by the idea that palliative care coming in means that somehow they've failed or that they're handing off their patient.
2: Um, Well, thank you for saying that. It wasn't always that way. Let's just say Um, I'm not (laughs) going to say which physicians, but there was a time. Uh, And I'm going to deliberately over-dramatize this just to make a point, but there was a time when on a particular unit at Children's National, I was met at the door by a physician with his arms crossed and his legs spread, why are you here, who called you, we don't need you to see our patients. That particular provider now is is one of our larger referring physicians. Um, so it takes a lot of education. And and, and that was a, a, a deliberate, dramatic uh, interpretation of what's going on. So um, don't uh, like quote me out there that doctors are blocking palliative care because they're really not. It's the same as with families. It's helping them to understand what palliative care is. As I talked about in my bone marrow transplant example, we're not here to talk anybody out of their heart transplant or the bone marrow transplant or this medication or that medication or this surgery or that surgery, because that's not our role. You know, I am not the cardiologist. I am not the oncologist, although I'm probably more of the oncologist than anything else to be be, because of my history. But even then um, that's not my job or the palliative care team's job to prescribe treatment for somebody's disease. That's not what we're here for. We're really here to say we're an extra added layer of support. Sometimes when, and I've had families tell me this, um, when you are have a, a great relationship with your main physician or your main medical team and they come around on rounds and you're thinking, I want to ask them questions, A, B, C, D, and E. And it, it's all very like, you know, there's a very short time when the team is on rounds you know, they're trying to get to all of the patients on a unit. Um, and while, They would love to be able to sit down at every patient's bedside and spend an hour or more with each family. They simply don't have the time. And so things get condensed into what is the most important medical thing at this moment. And so families will have that conversation with their primary team. But then later they realize, you know, I didn't ask them this. I didn't tell them that. I did. I just want them to hear my story. So a lot of times what's, the most important thing we can do is just sit down at the bedside, turn off the pager, turn off the phone. I'm here as long as you need me to be here and to spend, whether that's 15 minutes or whether that's an hour and a half or more with a family, it's what do they need? And that was the number in our study. That was the number one requested intervention, which is something we called um, supportive care counseling, just listening to their story. And Often care is focused, as it should be, on the ill child and what's needed for that child. And nobody's asking mom or dad, how are you doing with all this? How are the siblings doing with all this? Um, How are you managing day to day life in the midst of this new thing that you're having to go through? So that's really what we're there for. And what we try to do is be that extra added layer of support. For families, and sometimes I would see six, seven, eight, nine patients a day, pretty quick visits, you know, in and out. And other days, I would see one or two patients because those are the families that needed that two hour or plus visit. Um, and so it's really, um, you just have to go where the family leads you. and You go in, you think you're going to have a two-minute visit. Hey, how are things going? Everything on paper looks great. And then ugh, it all comes out, you know, that they're really struggling with something.
1: You yeah. know, from, from my perspective, what you're describing, Debbie, is what I would describe as a, something that is a real deficit in healthcare, And that is both support and advocacy. Yeah. You know, those things where I- exactly that, in the moment when under stress, when a family is juggling what is going on in their world, they may not have the capacity to ask the questions that need to be asked. And especially if they're feeling like this physician's in a hurry, I don't have time to ask them these questions. So I, I see you fulfilling that, that very important role. You know. And I've, I see that in my own world as a massage therapist, because we have what I call the luxury of time in our practice, we're one of the few healthcare providers that regularly has a full hour or more with a patient. We hear stories from every single patient that we see. And I often have patients say to me, you are the first person who has taken the time to listen to my story. And I've often thought, you know, we are so well positioned um, as massage therapists to step into that role if only we had better ability for interdisciplinary collaboration where we could share that important information with their physician or their other care providers. Unfortunately, that doesn't often happen for us because we don't generally work in an institutional setting, especially not here in Canada. Most of us are in private practice. So, uh, yeah, so I can see those You know, what I have often observed over 30 plus years of practice as a real deficit, that you're fulfilling what I think is one of the most important things in healthcare.
2: Well, thank you for that, because that's exactly what we want to try and do. I know that I've had parents um, also tell me that at times they're afraid to have these conversations with their medical team because they worry that the team will change the focus of care, thinking that they can't or they won't, or they, uh, they won't want to, whatever, you know, go down a certain treatment path. And most of the time that is not it at all, or it's they're afraid to tell their doctor, you know, I'm really worried. Um, that weren't doing or not doing the right thing here. And they're afraid to say that because after all, it's the doctor um, or the nurse practitioner. I say doctor, but the medical team, it's the medical team who has all of these degrees and all of this experience behind their belt. Who am I to say, I don't think this is the right thing to do. And so we really encourage families and um, you know to, to again, be open and honest with us, Just as you said, sometimes we get those stories that I'm like, oh, I don't know that the team knows this. So I always ask permission of the family because if they don't want me to tell a provider then I don't want to break their trust. Um, But on the other hand, you know, usually I say, you know, with your permission, I'd like to talk to your medical team about this, um, because I think this is really important information that they have because you're part of the decision making team. You know, as a family, as a parent, as a patient, if they're old enough and developmentally appropriate, they're all part of the medical decision making. It shouldn't be um you know, just autocratic where the the physician or the nurse practitioner or whomever makes the decisions. It needs to be a whole consensus of people, including the family. And I do think that that's one thing in pediatrics we do pretty well um, because the child usually is not able to tell you. Um, not always. There's, there's certainly adolescents and young adults who um, either legally or uh, developmentally are able to take part in active decision-making, but many times they're not um, because of their age or their developmental status. And so families then have to rely on themselves to make that decision. And I will often tell families that, you know, while it's not easy to make a decision about your own health or your own medical care, you probably have some innate idea of what is the right thing to do for you. As a parent and my children are young adults now, but if some were to come to me, someone were to come to me and say, I think we should do this or that for, for my child. Uh, it would be hard for me because I would have to really think about, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing to do for them um at this you know particular time? so it's it's hard because you're you're making substitute judgment for someone else. And I think that is one area of pediatric palliative care that we need to do better in is advanced care planning. because for adults, over the age of eighteen, You, If you go into a hospital, for example, for admission, well, even for an outpatient visit, really, you're asked if you have an advanced directive. And if you don't have one, you're offered to do one and get the resources to do it. We often don't even ask in pediatrics. It's like, you know, it's not a deliberate, oh, I'm not going to talk about it. It often is just, well, of course, they can't make the decision, so I'm not going to even ask them about it but many children and young adults have very strong feelings about what they want or they do not want. And a poignant example of that is a young man that we had, Cal, I think you probably know this patient, but um, who had now passed away. But at the time he um, had a bone marrow transplant was doing very well from a disease point of view, but he had just about every side effect you known to man and he wasn't doing quite well. And he ended up in our intensive care unit and intubated and, you know, on a ventilator and, um, the time came to have the discussion with his family about what should be done, what ought to be done in this particular case. And their response was, I wish we had asked him. No one ever asked him what he wanted in the event that things didn't go the way that we wanted them to go. Um, And I am pleased to say that I guess based on that plus other circumstances, now it's a standard of care that, um, you know, all patients um, who are developmentally able are asked about their wishes um, in bone marrow transplant anyway. And there's, there's some other groups that are as well. I don't want to say blanket across the hospital, but at least in some disease populations, people are taking that seriously. But I think that that's one deficit that we have in pediatric palliative care across the nation, not sure how it is in Canada, but um, we're woefully bad at it, um, because it doesn't feel right. You know, um, children are not supposed to die, right? There's not, Uh, not saying that I wouldn't be sad if my 95 year old, you know, uh, parent or grandparent or died or whatever, but that seems a bit more natural than the, you know, five-year-old who this is not right. This is not fair. They, they shouldn't be dying. And why do we even want to have this discussion? And I think it gets back to Cal's earlier point of, um, wait a minute, you know, we're not at end of life yet. Why are we even talking about this? And so one benefit of having the palliative care team involved early Is that we develop a relationship with the family and said over time, you know, we can go back and say, hey, remember when we had this conversation, you know, about this um, and you were worried about if things got worse, what we what we were going to do. And you said this. Now we're there, you know, so that they realize, okay, I, I had that opportunity to think about it before the crisis came. Now the crisis is here. And while I still may second guess myself because everybody does, that's just, you know, human nature, to second guess. Am I doing the right thing? At least they can reflect back and say, okay, I had time to think about this. I remember having that conversation and why I said what I said then and the decisions I made then. And this is, you know, this is why I want to stick by that, or this is why I don't. And you, you have a whole nother conversation, but I would say also that, um, Anything as a massage therapist that you see or you hear or you experience with clients and in their home or in the outpatient setting, whatever, bring it back to the primary team. You know, just if you have a referring physician, at, again, with the patient's permission, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, calling and having a conversation and just letting them know. And then it's it's theirs to run with and do what they want. But I think more information arms us to do better medical care than to have less information, so don't be afraid to to give that information um, to whomever the medical team is. I think it can only help.
0: Yeah, and that that is the heart of integrative care. I mean, we've been talking a lot uh, lately here at Healwell about how it's kind of a misnomer, integrative care, like sort of everything that's not allopathic medicine has been thrown in this bucket that like, Mm -hmm. if you're acupuncture, if you're massage, if you're music, if you're, you know, not a pill or a surgery, you're integrative, but mostly it's sort of a la carte disconnected supportive care. And those providers don't have the benefit of the perspective of the frontline providers and the frontline providers don't get to learn what we see. And that, because of the way we work with patients, I think we do often learn things. We kind of joke that we're kind of undercover chaplains or undercover social workers because people, we're sort of a non-threatening presence and patients quite organically share things that they may not have shared with the other providers. And it's really our responsibility in, you know, demonstrating the value of truly integrative care. And I mean, that's why at HealWell, we advocate for massage therapists um, because anybody can rub. But, if you have an observant provider who knows what to listen for and how to relay that information, it really does make care better and more integrated and and we see better outcomes and it just creates a collaboration that isn't really standard of care in many places
2: absolutely and i I was very well informed sometimes by reading the massage therapy notes about, um, and some of it I didn't understand, you know, all of the lingo that you guys use um, (laughs) didn't sometimes make sense to me. But, you know, you could tell um, because there was a documentation of the change in the patient's status in the time that the massage therapist was there. Plus, I would hear staff nurses say, hey, they had massage therapy last night, and this is what the massage therapist told me. And so it would get passed on in that way as well. So I say, again, more information, the better.
1: Well, don't we love hearing that? (laughs) Indeed.
0: (laughs) I'm curious about how I want to I want to phrase this as a question uh, because I we deal a lot I feel like with moral distress uh, as massage therapists and I mean particularly because we're truly removed from any sort of decisions or or intervention about care but there are so many things that happen I feel like in pediatric care that go back to what you were saying earlier that like kids culturally kids aren't supposed to die. And so when a child is born or a child is, is young by cultural standards, they, and something happens that threatens what we have imagined should be a long, healthy life, there's a uh, almost an assumption that whatever is available should be brought to bear on this case. And we were actually just, I was just reviewing homework. Uh, we have an online course about pediatric uh, uh, cardiac care. Uh, And one of the students had written her essay and she said, you know, if a parents, if a child sort of qualifies for a Berlin heart, does the parent have to say yes? Or can you say like, I know this would help, but I don't actually want to do this. And it was an interesting conversation of like, it's almost more unnatural to resist the technology than to allow a child to die. And I mean, I am sure that you and your team are right at the intersection of that so often.
2: Absolutely. Um, We get, well, we now, um, and this was another Panda Cubs initiative, which I thought was great. We now um, sit on the heart transplant committee so that when a patient is being considered for heart transplant or ventricular assistive device placement, um, the palliative care team is there who have met the patient, have a little bit of understanding about what their goals are, and what they're hoping for, and can add to that decision making. So I think it really gets back to, um, um, as they say, in a good relationship, communication, 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 right? Often it is about exploring what the family or the patient's fears and concerns are, you know, what what are the reasons they do or do not want X, Y, or Z treatment. Um, And so that once we can then understand that, then we have a conversation with a larger provider team um, and and then we'll bring the family in as well. But um, let's have a conversation with them. You know, why does Dr. X really want this particular procedure or this particular treatment done? What's the rationale behind it? Because not uh, sometimes these are the best and brightest um providers in the field, you know, they have a lot of scientific evidence behind them uh, to support whatever this particular procedure is. Um, and as a parent, if I'm sitting there and and we'll just use the Berlin heart example, um, if doctor is going to tell me that there's a 1% chance that this is going to help my child, well, I'm going to take that 1%, right? So it's the way that things are presented as well. Well, there's a one percent chance it's going to help your child. There's a ninety-nine percent chance it's not going to help your child. So what are the differences there? You know, what what are the side effects of this particular procedure? How is this going to affect the patient's quality of life? And when we look at um, ethical decision making in um, in healthcare in general, but I'll use it as a pediatric example, um, we use something called the four box method, which is um, Johnson and Siegler and I think the other person's name is Winslow but they developed this in the 80s and it was really it's a, I think it's interesting it's a physician a f- a physician, a philosopher and a lawyer. And I can't remember who's who of those three, but what a great group of people to have help yeah. make their medical decisions, right? Um, but you look at what are the medical indications? What are the the things like their diagnosis, their age, you know, all the, med- what treatments are they on? What have they already tried? You know, what are the medical things about this case? And then you're looking at patient and family preferences. What are the things that they're hoping for? What are their values? Um, what are the things that are most important to them? And then you look at quality of life and how do how is this patient's quality of life gonna be affected for the better, maybe for the worse, maybe no change in their quality of life. So what is sort of a risk benefit kind of thing? Um, again, what are the things that are most important in, in our case to a child? Um, if they really, really, really wanna go to school and that's where they get joy in their life and whatever you're gonna do, is going to keep in the hospital 90% of the time. And there's only a a 1% chance. And again, I'm deliberately polarizing this. So, you know, most things are not that black and white. Most things are like, well, there's 50, (laughs) 50 chance. Um, But, you know, if that's something that's really important and now we're going to take whatever time they might have left, even with this procedure or this treatment or this medication or whatever, and now we're going to impact that quality of life so they can't do the things that bring them joy, how does that play into our decision? And then the last thing is contextual features. And that's the things we may not have any control over. You know, um, what is their financial situation? Um, do they have a car that they can get back and forth to, you know, treatment? Are there, you know, five other siblings and no grandparents, nobody to help take care of uh These other siblings, and I don't know, it's been a long time since I've had kids in daycare, but I think it's probably pretty darn expensive um, if you don't have, you know, family or friends who can help you, those kinds of things that – these are things that we may not at all be able to you know, help with. Um, and, and then, of course, what about their their culture and their religious values? And any of those may be in quality of life or under family preferences or under contextual features. You know, how does all that play into decision making, too? So often when it's a, I th- like to think of it as like an ethics workup. Just like you do a history and physical, you know, as a medical person to get to know the patient and the family, this ethics workup is the other way. And, you know, that way you can sort of put it down on paper of, oh, boy, you know, almost like you did back way back when pros and cons, you know, and trying to decide what college to go to or whatever. Um, You know, you can just sort of look at things in a different way and and try and make decisions the best that you can. Um, But I think families second guess themselves all the time. And I think we need to get information from providers about what is the real rationale behind them recommending treatment X. And if there's clear scientific rationale and a high likelihood, my husband always says the military is all about risk and reward. Right. If the risk is high, but the reward is equally high well, okay, you know, I'll, I'll I'll accept the risk because I know I'm going to get a, you know, a good reward out of it. On the other hand, if the risk is high and the reward is low, hmm, you know, I, maybe I don't want to yeah. do it, you know? Um, and again, things are usually somewhere in the middle, um, which doesn't make it easy. I wish everything was black and white and then we could just, you know, be easy, right? <laughs> to make decisions yeah. that way, but it's not.
0: Well, and I feel like what you described is it comes back to so many things that we, we find ourselves talking about on the show is that so much of how to take good care of each other involves slowing down. Mm -hmm. And that in order to have that conversation and, and slowing down doesn't mean we take four hours. It just means like, just hang on a minute. The momentum that families feel to make these decisions and the the, the implicit bias of providers toward or away from procedures, I, I feel like families think they're making an informed decision, but they're sort of going in the direction they're being led in. And for someone yep. to be able to say, hang on, like yep. we might still go that way, but let's make sure we didn't miss anything. Yep. Um feels so important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Again, communication, communication, communication. I think that's what all of it boils down to is um, providers. Um, being aware of potentially their own implicit bias. You know, am I recommending this treatment because there's some vested interest I have, uh, I need to get a certain number of patients enrolled on this clinical trial, or I've had experience with other patients, it's been great, um, or whatever. what is it about my own values, um, my own potential biases, and and being able to recognize some of those and at least being aware of them and addressing them? Um, and then also with families, because they, they may also be coming to the table with their own set of Absolutely. biases. And so how can we sort of mitigate all of that and help families and providers to be open and honest with one another. And so often often I will play the dumb role and I will just say, you know, um, can I just summarize? I think Dr. So-and-so you're saying this and I'll try and phrase it in a way that I am basically saying either you said this way over the patient's head and there's no way they can understand what you're saying or I don't think they really understand at all what you're saying um, or is this the right thing to do? And and then when we rephrase it that way, um, sometimes families then will feel more empowered to say, oh yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, or ask another question, or vice versa. The the provider feels more empowered to, okay, let me give you some more information about this particular treatment or this particular procedure, whatever. But communication, I can't see that enough. I mean, I think that's where it's all at. And we could just come to the table. recognizing that we're all imperfect human beings um, and we all come with our own stuff. um, But we also come with a lot of knowledge. The patient and family come with the knowledge of that patient, that family. We come with the medical knowledge and how can we bridge those together so that we're providing exquisite physical, spiritual, social care for patients and families. That's what we really want to do.
0: Yeah. Wow. I, I, I usually, one of us usually says, so what should we know about this before we wrap up? But you just nailed it. We, I mean, <laughs> you did. That well, is it. You. Communication and, and humility.
1: <laughs> and you just delivered one of the most important teachings for anybody in life in general.
2: <laughs> Amen. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, I try, I will tell you, Cal knows this, but I, uh, when I lived in the DC area, I had a very lengthy commute and at every, um, presentation I would give or, you know, at any chance I had to complain about my commute, I did because it just was not pleasant. I drove two hours each way on a good day. Um, And if it rained or snowed or, you know, the stars were not aligned, then, you know, it was three hours plus. So I complained about it all the time. And I used to, uh, I I don't think I'm a road rage person, but it would, it would upset me, you know, when people would cut me off or, light didn't change when I wanted it to change or traffic slowed down or whatever. And then dawned upon me one day as I'm driving, like, I don't know what all these other people are experiencing in their cars. You know, maybe someone just had a loss or maybe someone just lost their job or maybe someone is really worried about paying the bills today. Or maybe somebody's just cranked up the music and really having a great time relaxing and is not paying attention. And so uh, to give ourselves a little bit of grace to realize the world does not revolve around Debbie LaFond or Cal Cates, you know, or anyone else. <laughs> the world revolves around <laughs> all of us in an equally, I don't even know what the right physical term physics term would be, but you know, it revolves around yes. all of us equally and that we just need to, to recognize that and to cut each other some slack and realize that when patients and families seem stressed out or seem difficult or whatever words you want to use to describe them, they're fighting for their lives, you know, or their child's life yep. in, in pediatric case. And I tell you what, I can just say, you're probably very happy that I was not the parent of a child with a chronic or serious illness. Cause I would have been one of those people, um, as I'm mm-hmm. sure you would be too, you know, for your loved ones, yep. that that's Absolutely. all we really want, you know, in the medical realm is for our child Um, our loved ones to be taken care of in the most holistic, compassionate way possible. And if people would just listen, and it's, it's sometimes not all about the words they say, you know, it's about the nonverbals as well. And I was reading Absolutely. up, uh, I was reading this article actually on implicit bias and that um, I was taking notes. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting and I never even paid attention to before is um, the frequency of eye contact and your physical proximity to a patient. You know, I, I sort of always think that I do the same for everybody, but is it, do I really, do I, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to watch that now. You know, do I yeah. not have eye contact with someone who I may have a potential bias about what, whether they're, I don't know. could be about anything, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, obese, substance use, you know, whatever. Um, yep. It's not always about the words. It's about all those other things too. And it's, it's just all quite complex.
0: Absolutely. There's no, no end to the level of self-awareness that's necessary. <laughs> right. Oh, well, thank you, Debbie, for the, the thousands of lives that you have positively impacted, including um, both of ours and uh, our listeners. And thanks for the generous gift of your time with us today.
2: You are so welcome. Thank you so much. And I'm so thankful for all that you massage therapists are doing. Um, And I'll say particularly here, well, because that's who I've worked with the most, but um, agreed, the differences (laughs) you have made in healthcare is outstanding. And I think that we have such more objective measures of your impact now than we had, you know, back in the 2000s, you know, when I first began yep. doing this. And now you mentioned massage therapy, you know, people bring it on, you know, before it's like, mm, you know, I'm not so Maybe sure not. about that. Yeah. Now it's like, Ooh, where are they? I mean, Cal knows this. We've had patients the first time they come they're They're not even signed their admission paperwork. And they're, are. am I on the massage list for tonight? You know, they, they want to make sure <laughs> that they are on that list so that, that totally. they don't get over. So um thank you for all that you do um, to make patient and family lives just a little bit better.
0: It is good to be part of a community of people who are really trying to lift up their fellow humans. So thank you, friend.
2: You're welcome. Amen.
0: (laughs) Well, listeners, it's been another episode of Interdisciplinary. Now it's time to go out there and lift up the voices around you and help us make this world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Go tell your friends, your family, your pets, everybody. Like us, share us, review us, and spread the love. Thanks.
1: Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet, uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell dot org. That's podcast at healwell dot org. Thanks for listening.